Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We start out this week with our monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. According to several activist groups in Louisiana, 53 women at two migrant detention facilities, Richwood Correctional Center and LaSalle Correctional Center, began a hunger strike on December 2nd to protest poor conditions and to demand asylum for detainees. According to Liberation News, the hunger strike was to call attention to the denial of medical treatment and poor nutrition at the facilities, the denial of visitation, and the lack of COVID-19 protocols. On Monday, December 13th, organizers from the Answer Coalition, Semillas, Arizona, and Louisiana Tech University's YDSA organized a demonstration outside the facilities to support the hunger strikers. Both correctional centers are managed by LaSalle Corrections, a privately run developer and operator of correctional centers throughout the states of Louisiana, Texas, and Georgia that have contracted with ICE. Louisiana currently holds the second highest number of ICE detainees in the country. LaSalle Corrections claims that there have been no hunger strikes in the facilities. The end date of the hunger strike is unknown. On Saturday, December 4th, a disturbance was reported at the Independence County Detention Center in Batesville, Arkansas. According to incident reports provided to the Batesville Daily Guard, two prisoners complained about the conditions of the jail and then flooded their cells after removing a water spout on a fire suppression system. Other prisoners joined by throwing trash. Two prisoners have been charged with felonies for impairing the operation of a vital public facility. On Wednesday, December 8th, a disturbance was reported involving more than 20 prisoners at the Southern Desert Correctional Center in Indian Springs, Nevada. According to reports, a group of prisoners refused to go to their cells and two fires were started that caused significant damage. No major injuries were reported and allegedly surrounding officers never entered the prison. The cause of the event is unknown. Since the disturbance, 15 prisoners have been transferred to high-security prisons in Nevada. On December 13th, two prisoners from the Glen County Jail in Brunswick, Georgia, escaped. The two women escaped while they were on cleaning duty at the Glen County Courthouse. Both prisoners have been recaptured, and another person was arrested for helping with the escape. On the evening of January 2nd, a disturbance was reported at the Maryland Reception, Diagnostic, and Classification Center in Baltimore, Maryland. According to several news outlets, several fires were started at the facility, resulting in four people being sent to area hospitals with non-life-threatening injuries and now released. 28 prisoners were treated for smoke inhalation. The fires occurred on the fifth floor of the facility where books, mattresses, clothing, and food carts were set on fire, amounting to more than $50,000 in damages. The cause of the fires is unknown, 
or how many prisoners were involved. The Baltimore Sun cited issues related to understaffing of guards. For more information, please check out perilouschronicle.com. The explosive spread of the Omicron variant has brought our focus back to the COVID vulnerability the prison system imposes on its captives. This week, we speak to two people, one outside and one inside the walls, dealing with the effects of COVID on California prisoners. We start off with an interview with Olivia Campbell, an advocate for prisoners based in Sacramento, who's appeared on KiteLine before. For background, she paints a troubling picture of systematic medical neglect since the beginning of the pandemic, including disturbing treatment of disabled and elderly prisoners in the two state medical prisons. Her focus this week, however, is on the state's violation of vaccination orders, allowing guards to evade basic safety measures and threaten the health of vulnerable prisoners in California Medical Facility and California Healthcare Facility. After Olivia, we hear from Emily Mushakor, who updates us on conditions in Corcoran, the California institution where he's held. He shares that, unfortunately, COVID safety failures extend beyond the state medical facilities. In Corcoran, guards are also refusing vaccination and using the crisis as leverage against both prisoners and the administrators. While prisoner and solidarity protests spread across North America when the first wave of COVID hit, there's now a surprising acceptance, especially on the outside, of prisoners suffering sickness and death as Omicron tears through the prisons. Hi, my name is Olivia Campbell. I am an activist located in Sacramento, and for about three weeks now, I have been trying to get the word out about human rights and safety violations that are happening at the two medical prisons in California, the California Medical Facility in Vacaville and the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton. These prisons are subject to a public health order that was issued by the state officer on August 19th requiring all prison staff, paid, unpaid, contracted, and state employed who work in certain prison healthcare settings to have been fully vaccinated by the 14th of October of last year. They have very recently updated that order to require that everyone has to be boosted now as well. So on the most recent case management conference for Plata versus Newsom, which is the ongoing litigation regarding inadequate health care in all California prisons, the attorneys for the incarcerated mentioned that there is a serious lack of compliance among contractors at these two medical prisons with this vaccine mandate. And there is no testing alternative for this mandate. It is vaccine only. Um, they, they cannot opt to be tested twice weekly. And this is an ongoing order. This has not been blocked in court. So this is ongoing. And the compliance rate at the California Medical Facility has been listed as 37% when 26% of their overall staff are contractors. So that's a pretty big number of people out of compliance. And at the California Healthcare Facility, 17% of their overall staff are contractors, and their compliance rate is 61%. So 37% compliance at CMF and 61% compliance at CHCF. And what makes this very, very dangerous is that with this, uh, with these being medical prisons, a lot of their contractors are medical personnel who have direct contact with 
the oldest, the most disabled, most medically vulnerable people in the entire prison system. And with them being out of compliance, that puts these people at great risk for infection and serious complications from COVID. And the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation thus far is doing nothing to prevent these non-compliant contractors from entering the prison, even though per the order, that's what they're supposed to do. If they are not vaccinated, they are not supposed to be allowed in. But CDCR is just letting them in. And in fact, on the last case management conference, the state basically said, yeah, we know this is an issue. Uh, We know it's a problem. We know there's a lack of compliance and a lack of enforcement. Now, when I learned of this, this was on December 16th, I reached out to the Department of Public Health. I reached out to several other local, state, and federal entities. I reached out to about 20 legislators and the media. And I have since received a call from the health department saying that they could not find anything to substantiate the figures, even though they are publicly available in the case management statement submitted by the attorneys uh, in the Plata case. So that information is out there. And I have heard back from two staffers so far with the same exact message from CDCR saying that they believe the compliance rate to be much higher, but with nothing concrete to back that up, you know, their, their data is a mess and you never know what to believe from them. And I think that it is very concerning also that this particular statistic would not have been known, but for just an almost passing mention that took about 45 seconds in a court hearing that was not recorded for future perusal. And this statistic concerns some of the most medically vulnerable people in the state, and it almost went completely unnoticed. And not a lot of people are talking about it. Um, Meanwhile, cases are skyrocketing again all across CDCR. There are a couple of prisons that have over 150 cases right now, and I think the total is over 600 cases are rising slowly but surely at both CMF and CHCF. CMF is at, last time I checked yesterday evening, is at 10 cases. And what I'm just trying to avoid is a repeat of last year. Uh, The last time I was on the podcast, I talked about the horrific conditions after the outbreak began at CMF, where people were subjected to filthy quarantine conditions and nurses were leaving unconscious people to die. And I don't want a repeat of last year. So I have just been trying to get the word out and figure out how to advocate around this issue. So last year, the outbreak at CMF started in mid-December and lasted until the end of February. For the first 24, 25 days, there was not a single drop in cases. Numbers were just absolutely going through the roof. In all, over 500 people were infected, 10 died. The quarantine conditions were absolutely filthy because they were using a dorm that had been previously used to house dogs that were part of a training program that happens at CMF. The dorm was not cleaned before being used for quarantine. The nurses would just go to the dorm, stand in the middle of the room, shout for people to line up to have their vitals checked. So sick people who were too ill to leave their beds were being missed. When other incarcerated people would try to get help for those who had 
gone unconscious, nurses would ignore them for hours and they were being given tiny food proportions. They were just minuscule and sick people were expected to cook things like random raw vegetables. So the food situation was also deplorable. Their laundry was not being picked up. So people who had soiled themselves due to the diarrhea from COVID were just were just in soiled clothing for days and days on end. And there weren't a lot of people working because everyone was sick. So the disabled population who have their accommodations, their assistance as required by the Americans with Disabilities Act, they were just going without their assistance because their ADA workers who were incarcerated people were all sick and the administration was offering no kind of alternative accommodations. So you had people who needed help wheeling to their doctor's appointments who were just being left. There is a dorm at CMF that houses 21 people who use wheelchairs, and there aren't enough single cells, even though CMF is a medical prison and a lot of their people are disabled, there aren't enough single cells to accommodate that many people who use wheelchairs for quarantine. So as a result, COVID spread like wildfire through this dorm. And I mean, you had people in their 90s, you had wheelchair users, you had all kinds of medically vulnerable people getting COVID. As far as activism that happened around that, the thing that you have to understand about CMF and probably CHCF too, although I don't have a lot of intimate knowledge about them, but the thing about about, uh, CMF in particular is that part of their population are the elderly medically vulnerable disabled people. So a lot of them are not up to organizing and advocating and the consequences of retaliation for them if they did are much, much more dangerous for other able-bodied people. The other part of the population is trying to make parole so they don't want to make any waves and risk their parole because they're trying to go home. So the same atrocities happen at CMF that happen at all of the other prisons. Just you don't hear much about it because there's not a lot of organizing around CMF uh, for that reason. And they do a really, really good job of making themselves appear to be a more humane prison, but they are absolutely as evil as all the others. And I'm sure CHCF is the same way. You know, a prison's a prison and they're all just as evil. There's also another prison that is one of the two women's prisons in California. That's the Central California Women's Facility. And uh, that's where the medical services for the women are. So I would not be surprised at all to learn that there's a serious noncompliance issue there, but I don't have the statistics on that because it hasn't been mentioned anywhere. And that's part of the problem, right? Like this information is just not, it's very obscure. It's not widely available. I reached out to all of the research groups that I'm aware of who are documenting COVID in prisons. Several of them are based in California. There's the UCI Prison Pandemic Organization and the UCLA COVID Behind Bars. There is COVID in Custody, which is at UC Davis. And I've talked to one of their people. She did a couple of articles for me last year when all all the stuff with Outbreak was going on last year. And the other one is the COVID Prison Project, which I believe is at UNC. And I reached out to them and some of them I've not heard back from, but a couple of them are, are looking into it. My contact at COVID in Custody is looking into it. And I will say 
this for California, for whatever reason, they chose to make a lot of their COVID data public when apparently most states have not. I think there's only like four or five states that are making their COVID prison data public in any any degree at all. So CDCR has on their website, they have a tracker where you can view the current and the cumulative numbers of infections and deaths and it's broken down by prison and then you can see which at each prison you can see the percentage of incarcerated people and the percentage of overall staff that have been vaccinated but it's not broken down into any kind of subcategories so you can't see the contracted staff vaccination rates and then they also have Um, They have another page where they show what percentage of the incarcerated population at each prison has been tested in the last, I think it's a seven day period is what they go on. So there is data out there. It's just this particular statistic is not publicly available. And just like I said, almost went completely unnoticed. For people who are concerned Are there next steps or solidarity measures or research agendas that people could jump into? Yeah, I mean, anybody can do what I did. I contacted the Department of Public Health. I I blasted the state public health officer on his personal Twitter because he doesn't have a way to uh, contact him through, you know, any sort of conventional means as a government official. I contacted the office of the inspector general. I contacted the California state auditor. I contacted the department of justice, um, not the California department of justice, the national department of justice, because the attorney general of California is complicit in fighting the vaccine mandates with the governor and the prison guards union. So he's useless. And I contacted like I said, I contacted about 20 legislators. You know, I, I keep a, a running list of, I keep a lot of running lists. One of them is a list of legislators who have shown any sort of positive action on justice reform issues. I keep a running list of anyone who I find who is reported sensitively and compassionately on prisons and incarcerated people. I have a lot of reporters from California, but I also reached out to a few national reporters and a few national publications. And I keep another list of organizations. And that is probably going to be my next tactic is to reach out to them. I'm still doing follow up with with the media mostly right now. So as soon as that has sort of calmed down a little bit, I'm planning on reaching out to some organizations. And California has a lot of abolitionist reform organizations. I mean, there's so many. So all you have to do is just do a couple of Google searches and just contact anyone and everyone. I would love to see a protest at CDCR headquarters over this. And I mean, there's, there's so many other awful, awful things that CDCR is doing right now. So I mean, there's there's a lot of things to protest. Protests used to be legendary in California, and I would love to see that be a thing again. And now we hear from Emily Mushakor with an update on COVID conditions in his facility. Omicron, from what we see on the news, they're saying it's not as, as, as harsh or uh, as deadly as the Delta variant. But, but uh, what, what, they haven't changed anything from 
the way they do things. If you went on a visit or if you go outside to the hospital or to court or something, then you come back and get vaccinated. Um, I mean, you get tested. If you are been vaccinated, you still get tested. Um, not a lot of people have been vaccinated, but you, you get tested is still, you know, uh, required. Um, some people have had boosters, and that's also if you want it. You know, nobody has felt the effect of that yet. There's still people uh, having little colds, but they're not saying that they could have the virus and, and quarantine them or nothing like that. The, the guards are just not getting vaccinated because they don't get they don't want to get vaccinated. They can use however many sick days they have to call in sick and not run the program. So it's basically like we're still quarantining to ourselves. But as far as the Omnicom, yeah, I don't. Nobody has tested positive, and you know they haven't said that that's spreading just yet. Not not in here in this facility. You're saying that some of the guards are not getting vaccinated so they can get more sick days. Does that mean that they're understaffed there? Is that affecting programs? Yeah, that's exactly what's affecting the program is because they're, they're understaffed. By them doing that, it, it makes them become understaffed. And they have to have a certain amount of staff on the yard. I think it's nine COs have to be on the yard for them to run a yard. Just in case something happens, they have to be able to have enough manpower to assist the situation, which they really don't because the gunner is always in the tower. And there's gunners always in the building towers. And they can shoot you anywhere on that yard. So it's not like, you know, it, it, it's a it's dire straight. They need two COs in every building to run day room. But if they have one, they can run showers and phones. But, you know, like I said, they're milking it because a lot of them are part of the guard union. And the guard union, you know, they back each other. You know, it's, it's a strong union. It's kind of powerful. But the governor can always oversee the guard union with anything that they're trying to do that, you know, coincides what he's trying to do. If, if it's against what he's trying to do, rather. And that's been happening as of late because the head of CDC, his office is right down the hall from the governor. So we've been trying to flood his office. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. With what's going on, uh, of course, if it's any type of staff mistreatment, then they get right on that and, and investigate immediately. I'd say it's kind of low-key in comparison because we know that the paperwork we've been pushing uh, is getting answered, but they're legitimate excuses. They have legitimate excuses that we have to accept, but and we work around that. So we know there's nothing we can do about that to get you know our program back fully running, get the self-help groups back and get the other extracurricular activities we had as far as like the, the football team that we were trying to assemble, the boxing we were trying to assemble, you know, just things like that. So what we're doing is as long as we can have our study groups, then we're okay with that. As long as we go to work, then it allows us to still have time when they do open the yard to run up in a law library. And they're, they're letting you sign up just to just go instead of being ducked because of the way they run the program. And the board is still hearing people's cases, even though the self-help groups are a requirement. Some people have done a lot of them, so the board is still seeing your cases and not really trying to say, well, we're not going to parole you because of this, because they understand what CDC is doing. And being that we have a, that, it seems like it's a level playing field. So not too much stress, not too much worry. People just maintaining and still trying to find ways to, to assert yourself into other activities. I hate to see that this is, is taking effect like it is. But when you study capitalism, you understand how they operate. So it, it, it doesn't seem far-fetched. You know what I mean? We, we see it as a way of, of, of keeping the population in control, just like with the spread of AIDS or 
you know, putting the crack cocaine in their cities. You know, it's, it's the same concepts. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're same tactics all over again. It's just this time they're using some type of airborne disease, you know, to kill people off. You know, and even if some of them get affected, it's like collateral damage. You know what I mean? Prison is still a, on the stock market. It still gains wealth for those who, who hold stock. You know, so we understand how they'll play with our lives in here. But thankfully, right now, no, nobody's feeling that Omnicrom effect. You can just trace the like, flows of money and see who they decide are disposable populations and who they're right. going to prioritize keeping safe. Right, right, right. And that's that's always been their MO. You know, they see dollar signs. And, you know, it's like they, generation after generation after generation, you know, they, you know, to me, you know, I, used to, I watched soap operas, and it's, it's funny, because... This call and or telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You can see capitalism in full force on any soap opera you watch. And if you notice, they're always, instead of raising their children, they want to send them off to boarding schools. Well, it, it just shows me what you're teaching them in those boarding schools, and that's how to have positions where you're still in control, where you can run the country and generate the money. You know, and you compete with others, you know, for that money. You know what I mean? And... It just amazes me how we were learning these things that we didn't know, and now how we're we're teaching those these same things to open up people's minds and and to see how many people are gravitating to that and, and understanding it. Like with the Occupy Wall Street movement, how they how well they understood capitalism and how they were trying to make certain demands to challenge it, you know. And by that happening, I believe that we can we can start taking power back. We just have to keep finding ways to do it, you know, keep finding ways to assert ourselves and, and not giving up when things don't always work the way we want them to, but keep finding other ways to make things work, you know. Uh, it's so many fronts that they have control over that the monster has to be hit on all fronts and it can be, you know, at the same time. But as long as we can do that, you know, we'll have success going forward. While we were talking, I asked him if he had thoughts on compassionate release and reentry, and especially the recent death of Russell Maroon Schultz after his compassionate release. Well, you know, once you get incarcerated, you're just a street thug or whatever it is, you know, you got arrested for for being or how they, they label you. That's not a big deal. But once you develop a political consciousness where you understand the system and you challenge that, you know, challenge that system, you become a threat. So they place you in isolation. They keep you from waking up the masses and, um, you know, re-educating them based on what you learn. And as you can see with Comrade George Jackson, they did it to him. You know, they didn't expect Malcolm to come out as sharp as he, he, he did and was able to wake up society like he did. But that, that just goes to show you what you can do once you do learn that stuff. So they keep you in here for a longer period of time and they isolate you so that you can't do that because they don't want an overthrow of the, you know, of the class. And, you know, with, with letting someone out for compassionate release, you really should because you know, you know, that you put a person who might not even be guilty of the charge that you threw on them, you put them in prison for those long stints like that. Hopefully that generations after them won't know, you know, what's the truth behind Pro and how you went after and targeted other organizations, you know, especially revolutionaries. You know, so I believe that compassionate release should start at age 40, 50. You know, they should just, no matter what your sentence is, revisit it, get it straight, and let you out of there. You know, and, and that should start happening to a lot of people, you know, especially you've been in there over 40 years. I mean, that's just crazy. You know, you know you're not locking up social paths 
given them that type of power. You know what I mean? You're locking up people who, you know, challenge the conditions of their sentence in the courts. People who've learned how to read and write and understand your ways. You know, you're, 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 you're locking up people like that who can do good for us in the inner cities as well as wake up others. You know what I mean? And that's why they continue that practice because they know it's effective. My heart goes out to that brother. Um, I studied his work. Never got the chance to personally meet him, but my heart goes out to his family, his loved ones. And uh, my prayer is that they start, you know, releasing a whole lot more others because there's more. Mumia Jamal should have been home a long time ago, you know. Sandiata Coley should have been home a long time ago, you know. Uh, I'm glad David Gilbert was able to get out. You know, with all those people who challenged the system because they knew there was a wrong, yeah, compassion release should, you know, should just start up playing a big role in how they treat them and let them out of there. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.